I was supposed to have been fixed and I am very much not fixed. And it's like, I very much felt that I was letting a lot of people down. And that was the hardest thing. Hey, hey, what's shaking, hurdlers? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 232 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. I could not be more grateful to have Olympian Molly Seidel back on the show today. Molly, I before I even talk about what we're going to talk about, I need to say thank you for your openness and your honesty and also just making the time. We met for the first time after Molly ran the Olympic trials in Atlanta in 2020. As we talk about in today's episode, the last trip I took before the pandemic really hit full force was up to Boston to record with Molly in her living room. And so, man, it was just what a crazy moment for us to sit back down knowing how much has happened. I mean, this woman, since we last recorded for the show, she has not only gone to the Olympics, but become an Olympian, set tons of new personal bests, including an unreal showing at the 2021 New York City Marathon. And now today, fast forward, we're talking about what's really happened since then. If you have been staying up to date with what's going on in the world of running, then you may have caught the article that came out in Runner's World in October, really detailing how Molly has been navigating crippling anxiety and a relapse in her eating disorder. For today's episode, we're chatting about what that looked like when she felt like she was truly struggling the most, the catalyst for her finally seeking out treatment, how she feels about running these days, saying that she is doing much better, which just makes me so, so happy. And yeah, I mean, we talk about it all. We talk about how it feels to experience such traumatic events on a world stage, the hard conversations she has to have with her family, and what success will look like for Molly going forward. Again, love this combo, adore Molly, and think there just really is that resonating through line that you just don't know what someone is navigating unless you sit down and take the time to hear it straight from them. As mentioned, we do talk about some difficult topics in today's episode, including eating disorders. I'm going to list some resources in the show notes. If you or someone you know is struggling, there is help for you and you are certainly not alone. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on social. It's over at Hurdle Podcast. I am at Emily Abadi. And caveat, the, I can't even make this up if I tried, the USADA drug testers showed up at the end of our recording. So it does end <laughs> a little abruptly. Oh my goodness. The life of being a professional athlete. So have some, uh, have some grace with us. Guess we'll just have to get Molly on the show again. A-S-A-P. With that... Let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. 
Today, I am sitting down once again with the ever lovely Molly Seidel. How are you doing, Mal? I'm doing great. It's so exciting to be back. It's so exciting to be back. I see. Okay. But you say like, I'm doing great, but are you doing great? <laughs> Compared to how the last couple of months have been, yes, I'm legitimately doing great right now in proportion to where I was in like June. Let's just say, obviously there's always the ups and downs and whatnot, but just like on the whole, like I'm back into full marathon training right now. We've got this awesome team going on out here in Flagstaff. Izzy's actually visiting. My sister is here in Flag right now. So Honestly, things have been really great the last few weeks. Oh, that makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. So happy to hear. It's uh, it's funny for me right now, like kind of a full circle moment because you were probably like one of the last humans I saw in person pre-pandemic when we recorded for the show the first time and hung out in your living room. And now, mm-hmm. God, so much has changed since March 2020. It is really wild to think back to that of like that was on it. You were the last person who was in our apartment for basically probably until like that fall when the next humans that were in our apartment were the USADA drug testers that came for my out of comp dr- or out of comp drug testing. When I was like, are you guys allowed to be here? <laughs> <laughs> is this safe for anyone involved? Yeah, it was terrible. But um, yeah, so basically that was like the like last human interaction <laughs> for a while. I'm so happy I could bring you that joy. I also, you know, I mean, obviously since we've talked so much has happened, primarily the fact that you became an Olympian, you came in third at the Olympics, and now so much of what we're going to talk about today, opening up kind of about your journey and what's really been going on behind the scenes since, gosh, the last time we spoke. I'm glad to hear that you're doing great slash better than the last few months because the last few months have been a lot, right? It's It's been a ton. And I think a lot of it has been kind of just like dealing with the aftermath of the Olympics and the pandemic and a lot of things that I'd kind of been shelving for a really long time that it's like you realize that you shelve things for long enough and you're eventually going to have to like actually get around to tackling them. Um, Mm -hmm. You can't just put it off forever. And so that's kind of been what the last few months have been for me is like dealing with just everything since the pandemic started. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are in this boat now as we quote unquote, get back to real life, even though like gestures loosely, there's still some aspects of a pandemic happening, Mm -hmm. but we're all just trying to navigate like, what does this new version of our life look like now? And what is it that we really want? And this will kind of like lead me into this discussion with you, because I know that you have spoken now so openly about what you've been through navigating your eating disorder, ADHD, et cetera, and saying that, you know, that you want to feel good in your body. Mm -hmm. And despite feeling that way, that doesn't mean that like you can just get out and like escape all of the things that are causing these problems in the first place. No, exactly. And I think, I think a lot of it was, is just kind of like, expecting that maybe when I got the diagnosis that like all of this stuff would go away. And it's like, that's not how it works. Or even that like this shocking revelation to me that winning an Olympic medal doesn't somehow fix everything that's going on. And so it's kind of been dealing with that aftermath of it's like, what do you, what do you do when you've achieved everything you ever dreamed? And you're still the same very flawed person that you were beforehand. And 
it's kind of like overcoming that little bit of cognitive dissonance and like working past that. And I think that's been the hardest part of all of this of trying to rationalize like, okay, I accomplished this really big thing, but I still have a lot of work to do on myself. Yeah. Do you think that when you won bronze at the Olympics that it meant as much as you thought that it would knowing like all this other stuff you were dealing with behind the scenes? I think it, I, it did like, don't get me wrong. Like coming across that line was one of the greatest moments of my life. And just like for what it meant, not only for me, but for the entire team around me and what it meant for everything that we'd been through to get there training through a pandemic, like qualifying for the team and then heading straight into a global pandemic, not knowing if the Olympics were going to happen dealing with injury. I actually had gotten a, like a sacral stress reaction the March before the Olympics. So we were really worried about just what it was even going to be. And so it was just this huge moment of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this actually happened, that I was able to accomplish this. And, but the come down was really, really difficult. And the come down and the wondering of just like, man, like, how do I make any sort of sense of this in the scheme of like who I am, what my career is, what this means going forward. And the mental adjustment that it has taken since then has been really, really difficult. And I think probably one of the greater challenges in my running career. Yeah. I want to, I want to dive in to the feeling there. Something that I've been trying to do over the last year. I started working with a life coach in January of 2022. And talking about my feelings is something that I thought that I did before, but realized I didn't do it all until mm-hmm. someone started asking me how different things actually made me feel. So you say that it was one of the most difficult times of your professional career and that come down was so hard. During mm-hmm. that time period, talk to me about how it felt. I mean, it was, so we got back from the Olympics and already it was like, I think I slept for like three days straight just because like the sheer amount of stress that I experienced during that time from like landing in Tokyo through to the end of the Olympics is insane. Looking back, I honestly don't know how any of us did it because it was just like the entire time you're worried that like, if you are even Like if you're within six feet of someone who tests positive, you're out of the Olympics. Like until I was on that start line, I did not know whether or not I would be racing that day. And so it's just constant stress, constant stress. And then just like the excitement and everything I got back and it was like coming off of just this, like, like every brain chemical was maxed out and then having to build right back up after this enormously difficult experience right for New York when I was dealing with just so much stuff. I was like, that was right when I had like really fallen back into the eating disorder. And so like things were really bad and we actually questioned whether or not to go back into ED treatment that fall. And it was like a 50, 50 kind of thing of whether we would or wouldn't. And we ultimately decided we didn't, which I look back to now as I'm like, that might've been the wrong decision. Um, because it just, it was just taking all of these negative feelings and not actually like reflecting on any of them. It was just like shelve it, like just push it down, go do another marathon build. It was just taking all of these negative feelings, just these feelings of 
just utter exhaustion. It felt like rats had been chewing on the wires of my brain. And then there was just nothing left. I could barely get out of bed in the morning. And then knowing that I had to like build up for another marathon right away for New York and just like deep, what I realized now was just deep, deep depression of just lack of motivation, just sadness. And like, it was so hard to rationalize because I had just come off like the greatest accomplishment of my career. I'm like, why do I feel like this? And then that just spirals. You feel the guilt of like, like this is selfish for me to feel this way. And so it was kind of just like pushing all of it down, push all of it down. Like I'm from the Midwest. I feel like we're really good at doing that. Um, But yeah, (laughs) we don't talk about our feelings. I know we don't talk about our feelings. We just cover them in layers of cheese. Um, And so It was, it was this kind of thing where it was very much of just like, just get to the next thing, just get to the New York marathon. I just need to keep not actually processing what I've been through. I just need another race to focus on. And New York went so well, very surprisingly, actually, based on what that build was, I think it was just kind of carrying through the residual fitness from the Olympics because like it was a very abridged build. And so between that and then like training through the pain of the broken ribs and like all of that, it was just so hard that I think my brain just went over an edge that it couldn't come back from. And I think then we started to really see how much that was going to affect me when we tried to start the Boston build. And it was just like, oh my God, something is really, really wrong here. You were top American and that's your current PR, right? That New York City Marathon, 224. 42, which is just like insanity, Mm -hmm. truly insanity. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to think of that, of just like, it's wild to think that is my PR in the marathon one, because like, I don't really see New York as like a PR type of course, but then also of just like what that, like I've had far better builds than that. And it's kind of like one of those things where just like, I don't know how that came out to be what it is. And it's the same reason that it's like, I really want to try and go and like do the marathon build right and like be mentally healthy and like do all this stuff because I'm like, I just feel like that wasn't really representative of what I'm capable of here. Yeah. Something else I've been thinking a lot about lately is this concept of going from good to great, which is something that you've touched on. I've heard you speak on a little bit in so many ways is just like you have learned now how to be to how to excel in your words, as a good athlete and do very well. But now going through this next kind of iteration of treatment, and we'll talk about what that looks like, but going through this next iteration of treatment, envisioning what it could be like to be a great version of yourself, because showing up as a good version of yourself has been pretty good for you so far. So this idea of like, what that would feel like. Like what does good to great feel like? I guess that is kind of what this next phase of my career is because I am kind of looking at this as like the next phase of what this is that like how I was doing things before in a very, like, frankly, a mentally unhealthy way and like not treating my body, right. Not treating my head. Right. I maxed out, like I fully maxed out at what I could do. Like that American course record in New York, and the Olympic medal were the best it was ever going to get of Molly with an eating disorder. Because after that, like, it's just not sustainable. Like I can't go past that. That's the threshold of 224 on the New York course, which is like pretty good. Like not going to lie. Like 
a bronze medal is very, very, very good. But realizing of like, okay, like I wasn't doing things the right way and I wasn't doing things a sustainable way. And it was like, if I kept doing things like that, it was never going to get better than that. That's the peak of it. And so I guess that's something that we've been really working on through this current iteration of, of therapy and really taking a deep, hard look at how I've been doing things and having to almost like, in a sense, like break down every part of who I am and like rebuild it back up of being like, okay, like, what is it going to look like from here? Like, is it like, will I ever be able to be that good again? Like being fully healthy. And I think that's the fear. That's the eating disorder in my head of just being like, you will never be that good again without the eating disorder, because it just has this funny way of just latching on. But it's like, but I could never be better than that with the eating disorder. That's as good as it was going to get. And I've got these really big goals in the sport. And it's just like, I'll never know if I keep doing things that way. Like I have to become a totally different person if I want to proceed past that. And I'm not going to lie. It's really scary. It's super, super scary because you just don't know what it's going to be on the other side. Yeah. And that's totally understandable. I mean, we're always scared of the unknown, right? And it's as almost, it's kind of like we choose to linger in good because good is comfortable and great is frightening, but we want great. Mm -hmm. So where is that line drawn? Where Mm -hmm. is the line drawn where you say, I am at my wits end with being good. I am ready to embrace that next level of uncomfortable to be great. Yeah. And I think not even that. It's just like, it's realizing that I want more out of this than just what that was. Because like, it's really cool to go and win an Olympic medal, but then realizing like, okay, I really had to sacrifice so many other, like I had to live a life that was frankly hollow and empty outside of that. I know there's this like idea in running media that I'm just like this super fun, like crazy beer girl all the time. Like there was this article after the Olympics that it was like, people were worried Molly Seidel wasn't going to finish the Olympic marathon because she was having too much fun at the Olympics. And it's like, what the fuck does that mean? And so (laughs) there is this image of just like Molly Seidel is the fun beer girl. But it's like the reality of it was like, no, like eating disorder had hollowed out my entire world. I didn't I didn't have space to be able to have a real relationship. I didn't have space to like be able to be the friend that I wanted to be to people. Frankly, I hated myself a lot of the time. Like when you deal with bulimia, it just strips everything away from you. And that's the honest truth of it. All you have left is running. And I just kind of woke up a little bit and I realized like I want more than just this. And I think it can be better outside of just this. It's the same thing I went through in college when it's like, it's just so funny because it's like, my life is just this repeating four year cycle of like these things of like go through treatment, get better, and then just fall right back into it. And it's like, how do I break that cycle? Because I'm sick of being at this point where I'm sitting at the bottom of the well and I've got nothing left other than running and I'm holding on to running so tightly. And even that breaks. And then it's like, who the hell am I outside of this? Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. You know, it's funny. It was like Molly Seidel, the beer girl. And then like when you placed at the Olympic trials, it was like Molly Seidel, the barista. Like you've had so many iterations of like media coverage for Molly Seidel. Yeah. But I think I like, I almost like, like my ego and whatnot has almost latched onto that in a way too much because it is that way of like that, like the fear of letting go of the good in order to be great. It's almost this like 
I think our egos have a really good job, like do a really good job of like trying to protect ourselves and always being like, oh, like if I'm just the barista or I'm just the fun beer girl, I'm not fully invested in this. So if I fail, it doesn't, it's not a true failure. It means that I just wasn't trying fully. It's another identity, right? You're talking about latching on to being this excellent, superb runner, but this other identity is something else that you can kind of hold on to, to your point. Yeah, exactly. Of just like having this thing outside that isn't necessarily like a true identity, but that I can use as an excuse to be just like, oh yeah, well, I was also working at the coffee shop, so it's fine. And like, and so I kind of want to get away from that. And it's like, I want to be able to say like, no, like I am all in on this. Like this is, I have other things outside of it. Like I'm not just a runner, but at the same time, like I'm fully invested in this. So like, if I fail, if I don't make it, I can only blame myself on it, but it doesn't like, it doesn't mean I'm a failure. It's just like, that's just what it is. Like I can try as hard as I can and I might not, I might not make it, but at least I tried. What does making it look like to you? Oh, I think it's hard. Like I've struggled with this idea a lot. I don't know because I go back and forth on that whole thing. Like don't use like physical outcomes to like define your success, but it's like, this is a sport where it's like winning, like winning does matter like times do matter. That's just the God honest truth of it. But I think at the end of the day, the reason that we do sport is in order to learn more about ourselves as cheesy as that sounds. And I think for me making it is being able to say that I took this thing as far as I physically could take it with like my healthy, like clean body. And being able to say like, I went to the physical maximum of what my brain and my body were capable of in this sport. And knowing that I was able to take it to an Olympic bronze while not being fully healthy and just being like, what can I be capable of when I'm firing on all cylinders? And so I think that's the exciting thing and the scary thing about it. But yeah, I guess you just never know. Like, I have big goals in the sport. I don't usually share my goals with people. It is just the kind of thing of like, I just truly want to see how far I can take this thing because I know in my mind what I'm capable of. And it's just like, yeah, let's just see what we can do when I'm not like self-sabotaging myself. (laughs) So what you're saying is that despite winning an Olympic bronze, you haven't accomplished your goal. No. And that's the thing. I think like the Olympic bronze was a really good, like a really great marker of being able to show me, hey, like you deserve to be running at this level. I think it's hard for me to rationalize in my head when like the best women in the world are running like 214. And I'm like, well, I'm still a 224 marathon or like, like who the fuck do you think you are saying that you could run with them? But being able to see a 214 woman less than like 20 seconds in front of me and just being like, hey, like, I might like, I might not be there yet, but it's like, I can see that. And on the, it might be a matter of like getting the right conditions on the right day, because like, let's be serious. Like the conditions really played into my favor that day, but it's just like knowing like, Hey, I can see it right there. I know that like, I might not be doing this fully healthy right now, but I'm clean and I'm that close. Like I want to see what I can do. 
when you think about accomplishing the goal that you haven't so explicitly stated here, (laughs) how does that make you feel if you were to do it exactly how you are insinuating clean and being recovered from this eating disorder, so many of the mental hurdles that have burdened you up until this point? I think it would come with this feeling of less of like the shocked elation that came with the bronze of the bronze was just so shocking that it was just like, oh my gosh, that seemed to come out of nowhere. And I think being able to do these things like healthy and like in a fully aware, like healthy brain, it comes more of the, like the, the quiet confidence of being like, I know I'm capable of this and I'm going to go out and execute. One of my favorite books, it's like the rock warrior. I'm flubbing the title on it, but it's basically (laughs) a climbing book uh, like for rock climbers, um, that basically incorporates a lot of Zen principles. And a lot of that is, is kind of like bringing on that mentality of never saying like, I'm going to try. It's like, I'm going to do it because you're, when you go out, like you intend to put out your best effort and the conditions might not be there. You can't control the other people in the race, but going out and saying like, I'm going to give my maximal effort and I know that I can accomplish these things. And so I think it's taking that mentality into it of just like, I'm not going out and trying for these things. I'm not going out and hoping and wishing that the right day comes. It's going out and knowing like, hey, I am giving everything I possibly can to this. And it might not always be my day, but once in a while it's going to be. Two things. One, it's called the Rock Warriors Way, mental training for climbers. That's it. Two, if you give it all you got on that day, despite what the outcome is, should the outcome not be perhaps that you come in first, then what you're saying is knowing that you truly gave it all you've got is the only thing that matters. Exactly. Okay. My best races have been that. That's what the Olympic trials was. I didn't have in my mind that I wanted to go out and get second place in that because I didn't even know that it was possible yet. But it was just like, I'm just going to race as hard as I freaking can here. And we're just going to like, I'm just happy to go out and know that I'm like here and I'm ready to just absolutely ball out. And balling out was getting second and making an Olympic team. And so we it's love like, absolutely balling out. Yeah. And so it's that, I think it's like letting go of these ideas in our mind of like based on past performances, what we could be, or even like, letting go of this idea that I'm an Olympic bronze medalist and just showing up every time and just being like, I'm not going to change how I race because of any of this. I'm not going to like think that I'm better than I am like because of it. Like frankly, like that race that I just did in Boston, like I'm not going to the line thinking like I'm an Olympic bronze medalist. I'm going to win this knowing full well that I'd had no training going to that. I knew full well I was going to get my ass handed to me on a silver platter, but I gave my best effort on the day. And so it's like going out and knowing that I tried as hard as I could, like that's the goal here. And I know it's all very like hippy dippy ethereal. And I know I'm going to get shit from the let's run people of just like all of that. But like at the end of the day, that's what it is. Like nobody 50 years from now is going to care. Like half the people, like 99% of the people in the world don't care that I'm going out and running or whatnot. It's just like at the end of the day, we do this. So we can learn about ourselves. Yeah, for sure. Now, you said earlier that you, in retrospect, 
may have made a better decision if you went into treatment for ED the fall before the New York Marathon where you got your PR. Why didn't you choose to enter treatment after that marathon? I don't think I'd hit rock bottom yet. I think I fully needed to hit rock bottom and just realized that I had nothing left. Um, So rock bottom comes for you when you go for the athlete screening for Worlds. Is that right? That is correct. That was absolute rock bottom after having dropped out of Boston. Like my body was broken. My brain was broken. I just, I was at my wits end and we had considered pulling out of Worlds a couple times because things had gotten so bad. And the fact that the sacrum went like in conjunction, I truly believe in like the mind body connection. And that like, if you aren't willing to shut yourself down, your body's going to, it was just like, everything was on fight or flight mode. And my body just knew it was like, Hey, like, like bitch, you are done right now. And it, so it wasn't until getting out there and just realizing like, I physically can't do this anymore. And just realizing like something has to change because like, this is all going to go away if I don't actually take this seriously now. And I don't think I was in that place yet last fall. Things were bad, but they weren't that bad. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, Inside Tracker. To live your healthiest, longest life possible, you've got to understand what's going on in your body. Know that people age at different speeds and generic annual blood work, it just doesn't properly evaluate your biological age. The good news is that Insight Tracker does. Insight Tracker is a truly personalized nutrition and performance system designed to extend your health span and slow down the aging process. Created by leading data scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Insight Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. Add Inner Age 2.0 to any plan to calculate your true biological age and see how you're aging from the inside out. Kind of crazy, right? Now, for a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just head on over to insidetracker.com slash hurdle. Again, that is insidetracker.com slash hurdle to get 20% off the entire store today. Also got to give some love to my friends at Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable and companion app that specializes in breaking down your recovery, your sleep, and your workouts. Every single morning, opening the Whoop app is one of the first things that I do because in there, I can check out how the app breaks down my sleep along with other key health metrics like resting heart rate. And then based on that, Whoop gives me a daily recovery score from zero to 100%. So I know how ready my body is to take on the day. I have been wearing my Whoop since April 2019, and I am hooked on it because it is completely personalized to me. Now, the longer you wear the device, the smarter the algorithms and coaching feedback get. Whoop has helped me prioritize the positive routines in my life and the data around the negatives has helped me cut out some of the habits that hurt my sleep and recovery, like eating too close to bedtime, alcohol consumption to an extent, and also blue light exposure. 
I am hooked on my Whoop. I am a dedicated user, and I know that you could be too. Do something good for your life. Start tracking your health, wellness, and fitness at a deeper level today. Head on over to Whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And use code HURDLE to save 10% off your order. Again, Whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. Use HURDLE at checkout for 10% off. The rock bottom place is such a difficult place to be, not only because emotionally we're just like completely drained, but it's also this location, so to speak, proverbial location where you have to accept that change has to happen. Mm -hmm. And I spoke recently about navigating depression at the top side of this year. And for me, like I had this distinct moment where I like, pulled a pan out of the cabinet, all the pans fell on the floor. And in that moment, I collapsed onto the floor next to the pans and I just started sobbing. And I knew in that moment that it had nothing to do with the pans and just sheerly the fact that like, I couldn't do it alone anymore. I couldn't carry around this burden and not articulate my feelings and what I was navigating. So for you, after hearing from the people at the USOPC that this isn't happening for you. What does that moment look like for you? What's your sitting on the floor surrounded by the pots and pans moment look like? My sitting on the floor surrounded by pots and pans. So it wasn't even a matter of like, I think like if I truly like said like, Hey, like I'm going to compete, they would have let me compete. It's not kind of like a thing where it's like they ban you, but it was Things had been so bad for so long. The eating disorder was really bad. Mentally, I was in that pots and pans on the floor. Just like every little thing was setting me off. And I had gone, uh, like I was, the Adderall was basically just like propping me up. After I'd been diagnosed with ADHD, um, I like started taking the Adderall and then just kind of realizing like one, that was only making the eating disorder way, way worse. I lost a ton of weight on it. And then it was just like, artificially keeping me going when like my body needed to stop. And so I had gone off of it going into Eugene. Um, and it was just like all the things together where it was like for the first time in a long time doing that questionnaire and going through the questionnaire and just like actually answering honestly, because I think for a long time I'd been just bullshitting it. I'd been bullshitting it to every single podcast I was doing, like everybody expects me to be this mental health advocate. So I'm saying all the right things and I'm not actually doing any of them. And it was for me answering honestly to the questionnaire and slowly getting that, like this relief of actually just saying it out loud of like, yeah, like I'm throwing up multiple times a week. I'm like, I'm not okay. Like I, like, I just feel like, like everything is worthless and whatnot. And then when it came back and they're like, Hey, we really want you to talk to a therapist. And I went outside the building and I think they expected me to be on the phone for like 10 minutes. And I was on there for over an hour, just literally sobbing in full public in the middle of Eugene. That was the moment of just realizing, like needing to almost hear it back to myself to realize like, like, girl, you need to stop right now and you need to get this figured out. And it was just like knowing like, okay, like I can't fix this myself. I think like 
I haven't done a whole lot of like, like AA type stuff, but I know the general protocol. And I think the first like step of that is kind of like seeding the fact that like you cannot fix it yourself. And I've been trying so, so, so hard to fix it myself for so long of like doing all the stuff, doing the therapy, like trying to like be on the right medication and just being like, no, I can fix this. And being just like, no, like you're not going to fix it. You need help. And that was it of just being like, yeah, I'm never going to fix this on my own. Why do you think that's the opportunity you chose to finally be honest? I think I was just tired. I was just so tired of just trying so hard and holding on to this thing so tightly to make the world champs happen, to make like holding on to this idea. Like if I just keep moving, everything's going to be fine. And even that morning, like when I had flown in, John picked me up and I was supposed to go and do a run on the marathon course. And I couldn't even make it a mile. I like, my body was so tired. My head was just so tired. And I was just sick of it. Like I told John that morning, I'm like, I hate running right now. And like that made him worried because it's like, when I don't want to run, that's like a real warning sign. And because it's like, I always want to run like, ah, yeah, I, I, it was just that it was like, my body was just sick of trying so hard and just never getting the results and just feeling like a failure that I couldn't do this on my own. Yeah. It's so understandable being at that level, being that tired and being like, my hands are in the air. I truly Mm -hmm. have absolutely nothing left to give. Yeah. It's like, you feel like you're just, it's like you're spinning out like your car on the edge of like a cliff. And no matter how fast you drive, you just feel yourself slipping backwards constantly. And I think that's the hardest part of just being like, I'm giving everything I can right now. And I'm just going nowhere. I'm going backwards. What does ED treatment look like? For me, this one has been pretty different, actually. So I uh, basically went up and spent the summer in Salt Lake getting treatment up there with a doctor and like a dietitian and all that that was set up up there um, because my boyfriend, Matt, who we'd started dating in the spring, he's been super supportive of this. And for me, a lot of it is like being able to be like in a safe environment and around people that I trust and kudos to him for like me basically being like, we'd only been dating a few months and like, basically, uh, USOPC was like, Hey, like we have, like, we have a doctor and like a facility up in Salt Lake that you could go to, like, do you have a place to stay? And so I like called him up. I'm like, Hey Matt, like, I know we've like really only just like recently made this official, but like, could I stay with you in Salt Lake to like get treatment for an eating disorder? And like, God bless that man. He was just like all in, like just immediately like, yep, let's do it. And I think I'm always going to be very grateful for that of just like how supportive he has been of it. But yeah, it was like working with doctors up there didn't go into like a full inpatient treatment clinic. But yeah, it's been a very different type. We've been doing some very different types of treatments that I've never done before that and like just exploring different avenues of what this looked like and realizing like I had to get off the Adderall just from a neurotoxicity standpoint and just because it was enabling me to just not eat, which is really not good. And so it's just like having to figure out now of like, okay, how do I treat ADHD without stimulants, which is already 
very, very difficult. Yeah. You were you scared to ask Matt to stay with him? Oh, 100%. I thought that was going to be the end of the relationship. So I actually, it to this day is the only fight we have had. I had not told him how bad things were because I was very, very scared of just what opening up like that. Like John was effectively the only person who knew the extent of it or my coach, John, who is also my roommate. He knew the extent of it and he was having to manage a lot of this. And so after trials, when all this like shit went down, Matt was kind of wondering, he's like, what the hell is going on? Like Molly isn't really calling me. Like I'm wondering like if something's wrong. And John kind of told him, he was like, hey, like Molly's like basically having a crisis right now. She's like not really in a place to talk about it, but like she needs help and she's going to be seeking ED treatment. And Matt like called me and like actually like really called me out on just like, hey, like if you want this to work, like you have to be open with me about this kind of stuff because it's like I can't. I can't help you and I can't be here for you if you aren't willing to tell me. And it was the first time anyone had ever done that and not seen me as just like a broken thing of like, like just this mental health baggage bringing it. It was just like, Hey, like I want to help you with this. I want to be here with you. And yeah, it was the kind of thing where it was like, until he said that I figured that like nobody would ever want to be with me because of this. And it was just like, Oh, like he's willing to accept all of this. And like, honestly, made getting through some of the worst months that I've had in a really long time, like really bearable. I think so often someone will say something like that to us. It's like, I want to be there for you. And even Mm -hmm. though they say that, we just assume that they're lying. Like we're Mm -hmm. wired to not want to be an inconvenience to somebody else. And for so long, as you articulated, you made it such a priority to try to manage this on your own. So not only did you hear him, but letting him in to actually help you was a huge step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it was that fear, though, of like the fear of opening up and actually showing people like who you are, because I think I'd gotten so used to that anytime I actually showed who I was, whether it's to the media or to people like everyone shies away from that because it's a lot like that's a lot to bear. And like you don't want to burden people with it, but it's like there is just the reality of showing like, hey, like this is what it is. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> it is what it is. And him like seeing me like fully who I am and just being like, Hey, like I want it anyway. And it's like, that, that was a really big moment for me. And I think honestly, part of me, like going through all this treatment was like being in the place this spring where I was starting this relationship with someone who I'm like, I really like this person and I really want this to work. And I'm not in a place right now where I can do that. I'm not mentally healthy that I can like be everything I need to be in this relationship. And part of that hitting rock bottom was just be like, if I don't figure this out, like I'm going to lose something that's really important to me. Yeah. But how special is it that that something was bigger than running? Oh my gosh. And I think that's what was pretty amazing to me is that like, I really want something outside of just this sport. And like, it was actually really funny. There was uh, when I was up in Salt Lake, it was actually this spring. So it was after Boston. So I was already like in a pretty negative place. That was the first time I went up there. And I ran a workout and it went really, really well, like shockingly well, way better than other workouts had been. And I called John and I was just like, it's crazy. Like, I'm like happy, but I'm actually like running well. And he's like, are you trying to say that you're shocked that like being happy will lead you to run? Okay. Because I think in my mind, I had this idea of like, you have to be miserable and alone in order to run well. Like you can't have both of these things. (laughs) 
<laughs> we like, can have it all. You can have it all. Or just, even, or just even that, like, you don't have to just be in like this negative, like running is the only thing that I have. Cause I'm like, the workout went super well. And I was just like, I'm excited to get done with the workout so I can go hang out with like Matt. And it's like, yeah. it shouldn't be this shocking thing, but I think a lot of us runners make it more complicated than it needs to be. Of just like, if I give any sort of space to anything outside of running, I'm not going to be good. And it's like, maybe it'll be better. <laughs> it could be better. And I actually think th that this is a takeaway I've heard from Emma Bates and the girls that train with Team Boss, because it's like the more of them that started to like kind of get together over there, the more supported they felt and like the better they felt about being able to do what they love while still maintaining friendships, which classically is so difficult for not just women, but athletes as a whole, as you go on and chase your dreams, it's like this assumption that my dreams are going to require me to miss out on so many things. But what if you could choose to do both to some extent, which is what now you're doing over in Flagstaff? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's very much what it's been of realizing over the last few months of coming out of this hole and like just being in a mentally much better space and now having like a great supportive boyfriend. I've got John who is like my ride or die best friend coach. And now we've got this team growing as well with Justin Hansen and Grayson Murphy and just realizing like, wow, like this is awesome getting to do this with people because so much of my career has just been doing this solo. And I yeah. think that's contributed to a lot of it. And it's just like, wow, like it really is a lot better when you've just got people who you vibe with. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, I want to touch on the Runner's World article coming out on October 6th of this year when it came out and literally the headline, Molly Seidel still struggles. Uh, that headline actually really got me. I did not like the headline on that. <laughs> Talk to me about the feelings after the Runner's World article comes out, because this is you kind of like you had your rock bottom moment. You admit to yourself, like, I'm not well. This is really truly the first time you admit to the masses that you're not well. How does it make you feel? It was hard because it came out a lot earlier than I was expecting it to. Basically, there had been like rumor, or I guess not rumors, they were true, but like people knew what was happening and people had started to talk and say things that were just not right. I think one of the going like theories on Let's Run was just that I was a raging alcoholic and that I was in like alcohol treatment centers. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and so there was all of this stuff going around. And then like it did break that like I'd been in ED treatment again. And so I was being contacted by reporters and it was like, well, I'm going to have to say something eventually. This is earlier than I thought I was ready for it, but let's just go for it. I'd rather be able to speak my piece than have people saying like untrue shit everywhere. And so I spoke to Sarah Lorge Butler, who I do have a good relationship with. I really think she does quality journalism for the sport. And so as someone who I'm like, I know she's going to do a, like a good job on this and really respect my, like my point of view on it. But it was, it was really, really hard talking about it and being that brutally honest dealing with the blowback that inevitably came. I, I'm just always shocked too by the people that react when I say these things of just like, oh, she's just lying to try and get attention. I'm like, there are far better ways for me to get attention than just... <laughs> Exemplify the blowback aside from like, she's lying. Mm -hmm. The I think there's just this like, I don't know if it's just like a sort of like, 
hatred that there is against like women or people who deal with this stuff or this fact that like I was supposed to have been fixed and I am very much not fixed. And it's like this idea and that I very much felt that I was letting a lot of people down. Um, And that was the hardest thing of just seeing like, I think like people probably feel a similar thing when they like rehab or like relapse with drugs or alcohol. Like eating disorder is much more similar to addiction than a lot of people actually realize. Um, It's a similar mechanism in the brain. And so like relapse is just a part of what recovery is a lot of times. And so, but there is that fear of just like, man, like, are people going to see me as a fraud? Are people going to see me as a failure? Um, Like saying that I was still dealing with this at the Olympics, like I'm disappointing a lot of people. And I think that's the hardest thing to deal with ultimately. What do you feel is more difficult, disappointing other people or disappointing yourself? Mm. I think, I think it's probably equal. I think it's just like, it's this, like, it's just this deep shame that I felt that was the hardest part of it all of like this shame that like, I failed, I fell right back into it. Like I should be better than this. And I know should is like the worst word in the world, but it's like, this feeling of like, man, like I thought that by the time I would get to the place of being an Olympic medalist, that I wouldn't be dealing with this anymore. Um, that I wouldn't still deal with body image stuff that I wouldn't still deal with just the, like how much this takes over your life. And I think that's just really hard. Like I never imagined that for myself. I never wanted that for myself. Um, and yeah, then just knowing like, Hey, I don't want, I don't want younger girls to see me and think like, this is what it takes to run at this level because it's not like it's, it's only hurt my career. It has not helped my career. And if anything, it's almost ended my career multiple times. And so it's like, I think that's the hardest thing of just realizing how persistent eating disorders are in the sport and how insidious they are, that it's like, it's kind of like a -a whack-a-mole. Every time you think you've like gotten it done, like two more pop up in different locations and in different ways. When it came to being upfront with your family about this relapse, did you find it to be equally as challenging to open up about? Yeah. Um, I think it's really difficult for me to talk about mental health stuff with my family. And I think even like being public about it is like pretty difficult for my parents to bear. So I've tried to like shield them from a lot of it. Um, so I think that was the thing that article coming out was a really difficult thing for our family. Um, yeah. And I, th- and I, that's really hard as well of just like me kind of be, like speaking my piece on it and knowing that like my parents aren't going to handle it so super well is, is difficult, but ultimately it's like, I'm an adult. How I talk about my mental health in my life is my choice and how I handle my treatment is also my choice as well. Um, And so it's kind of just like, yeah, it's just one of those things I have to deal with. But it's nice having like, it is nice ultimately having a lot of support um, and just like being able to feel that like no matter what my what choice I make, like I'll be supported in it. I think that's the most interesting thing about navigating mental health, challenge, adversity, et cetera, is 
at the end of the day, it is up to us to do what's in the best interest for ourselves. And that doesn't mean that you can't be considered or take into account how your decisions may make other people feel, but it is not our responsibility, nor are we capable of coping with how it makes them feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it is like, I grew up in a family where we don't talk about mental health stuff. We don't talk about our emotions. And I think part of that has made it difficult. Like when I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't express to my parents how bad things were and how much I was really struggling and same thing. So it was like, when I got to college and all of this stuff really started coming out and coming to a head, it was hard for them to deal with it. And I think it was really hard for them because like, for my mom, it's like, she like, obviously just wants me to be healthy and happy. But she's like, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. It's like, it's not anything they did wrong as parents. It's just like, it's just who I am. And so it's like, trying to take it away from that of not making it a pejorative thing and just being like, Hey, this is something that I'm going to deal with forever. And it's not a reflection on how you parented me. It's just who I am, but I just need your support and being able to talk about this. So I think that was actually kind of the thing when this article came out, I did have an argument with my mom about whether or not this was appropriate to talk about publicly. Um, And then she actually started getting a lot of messages from like people in our community, people around people who have followed me throughout my career and like how much it did really help them. A lot of people who have been diagnosed with like adult ADHD or a lot of people who have dealt with depression and stuff like that. And that it hearing about it really helped. And I think it like, and she did express that to me and we did have a pretty like heartfelt conversation about that of just like what it meant about like hearing from those people about how much it mattered to them. Just because like, I wish that I'd had role models when I was young that were able to speak out like this. And maybe I would have told my parents about it sooner. I would have told them about like just all the things that I was experiencing as a kid that I never dealt with that I'm now dealing with. (laughs) Well, I can tell you that there are certainly people listening to this and people that look to you as you've stated before for a sense of guidance, for just like their true admiration for the fact that you're so upfront about um, what you're still navigating. I'm not going to say Molly Seidel Mm -hmm. still struggles. I'm going to say what you are navigating. Yeah. uh, I just, I hated that headline because it just means so much. Like the Molly Seidel wants you to know she still struggles. It's like, I don't want you to know anything. I'm just like, oh, we couldn't find a better headline. Oh my gosh. Well, you know how I do here. The last time I had you on the show, I asked you this question. So I'm going to ask it to you again right now. Mm-hmm. You have an opportunity right now to someone comes to your Instagram page. They see a pro runner for Puma with over 230,000 followers. You look in the mirror. What is it that you see looking back at you these days? Hmm. I think I'm seeing a person that I'm like, that is very much a work in progress, but that is working really, really, really hard. And I think that's where I'm trying to have a little bit more self-compassion of just like, I think maybe that's like the legacy that I would like to have is that like, I have worked really, really hard at all of this. And I might not be the most exceptional athlete out there. I kind of always have seen myself as like a slightly like subpar athlete. 
Also, the USADA drug testers are here right now. So I actually might need to go. Shoot. Okay. We brought it on by me talking about USADA drug testers at the beginning. I need this to go and grab Go, go. Did I warn you or did I warn you that it was going to end <laughs> abruptly? For those of you that aren't in the loop on how drug testing works, USADA, as reference, stands for the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. Every professional athlete has to file whereabouts information with USADA. And then athletes can be tested at any time, 365 days a year without advanced notice. The purpose for this, as you may or may not know, health and epics, I mean, we want to have a clean sport and doping is both a health issue and an ethics issue. So these random drug tests are all a part of the funness that pros go through to compete at their level. That's it for now. Make sure you're following Molly over on social. Her account is bygolly.molly. And also follow along with Hurdle. It's over at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>